Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, Kingdom Kids, you can be dismissed. Everybody's headed to class. Elementary, you're usually in with me, but today you are spared. So you can make your way to your class this morning. Well, good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's my joy to wrap up our little three-part mini-series on our areas of emphasis here at the King's Church. And today we're going to be considering uh, what it looks like to be a faithful expression of the body of Christ here locally, here locally. But before we do, I want us to uh, just, just let our imagination wander for a second. Wander, that's the North Carolina and me coming out when I say wonder. I'm trying to get rid of it, but I can't. Just let your imagination roam. Have you ever considered what it would be like if the gospel shook up our entire neighborhood? If at every corner and cross street of our immediate geography, the name of Jesus Christ was on the lips of our neighbors. If they were gossiping about the gospel. Perhaps they'd heard rumors by the water cooler or they'd heard whispers of his name at Mr. Fish. But what if the coffee shops became Bible study barracks training the next generation? Or our neighbors were engaging in in witchcraft just right down the road, said no to worthless idols and turned to the living God. What would happen if the Lord turned our neighborhood upside down? Uh, Part of what's printed in the back of the Bibles that are in the pew backs, you can turn to page 893 if you want to follow at home or in, in the pew. But what's printed in the very front is Acts 17, and it's an, it's an excerpt 
uh, this is, this is what the, the, they, they were saying about the early church. This is what they were saying. They were saying that these men who have turned the world upside down come here also saying there is another king, Jesus. So how did a neighborhood get turned upside down? How did they cause such good and holy gospel disruption? They heard and believed and lived out the gospel in front of their neighbors. Uh, John Piper famously said at the end of his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad, he said this, Mission exists because worship does not. Mission exists because worship does not. And my contention this morning is that the dire need of our neighborhood, if I could even make it a little bigger, the dire need of the world is churches that have been gospeled. Churches that have been shaken up by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, and that we are compelled to live ordinary lives for the glory of God in front of a watching world. Paul says earlier in the letter that the gospel is actually the power source that leads to salvation to all who would believe. But typically when we think about uh, mission, if I say mission, a couple of you think of overseas mission, you know, down, down the street, or you think about a super religious subset of this place, of the church, uh, who are engaged in this type of thing. You might even see them as a little bit zealous. Maybe you might even think they're a little bit like a zealot for the gospel. They're a little bit too out there. Maybe that's what you might think. But there are no qualifications or prerequisites in the Great Commission for Christians getting out of the work of sharing the mission. The mission is part of what it means to follow Jesus. And this morning we're going to think about what happens when gospel doctrines, what we believe about God, sinks down into the bloodstream of a people, into the air that they breathe, and they do this all together. What happens? I think it might look like what uh, Leslie Newbegin points out and says. Listen to this description of mission. Because in my upbringing, mission was duty. This is something you must do. Do this. And there's certainly a do this aspect. Don't hear me wrong. But listen to this description of mission. It's what I want to invite us into this morning. Mission begins, this is what Newbegin says, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive and is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church and the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout that is not lethal but life-giving, an explosion of joy, an explosion of joy. If you visit a church and they're not leaving with at least a smirk on their face, I wonder if they've heard the gospel. We should leave with an explosion of joy that can't help but as a compulsion share this good news with our neighbors. And so our mission, if we choose to accept it, is to live ordinary gospel-driven lives, welcoming our neighbors into this place and into our lives for the glory of God. This is our main idea. We are called to ordinary gospel-driven lives to the glory of God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word.
Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And Father, what we are not, make us. By your Spirit, for our good and your glory, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's dive in. Paul's entire letter can be summarized like this. It is an apologetic for mission to the Gentiles. Verse 9 of our, uh, right after our text says this, that all these things must occur so that the Gentiles are reached with the gospel. So the truths that we've looked at all through, uh, well, kind of in a flyover of the book of Romans, but if you've read the book of Romans, it has these beautiful, high, high-reaching, mountainous uh, looks at the scope of redemption, of justification. It talks of, of our election. It talks of our forgiveness of sins. It talks about our union with Christ. It talks about all of these things, covenantal faithfulness. And Romans 8 is this amazing, beautiful crescendo that will put some joy right on your face and in your heart. But all of this is pointed and aimed to give the, the people a missional zeal to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to take the gospel outside the camp and down the street and onto the block to bear witness to the gospel in very particular ways. We are going to consider five. Bear with me. We're going to consider five. I'm going to fly. I'm going to fly. Time is just going to pass so it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. Bear with me. We're going to consider five particular ways that the gospel shows up in a people that make them missionally ready to then be a welcome to the world. Okay, you ready? You with me? First, we love our neighbors. Look at verses one and two. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up straight to the chase. When the gospel takes root, people stop coming to church to get, and they start coming to church to give. Instead of coming to church with our preferences as consumers, we start laying those down for the good of others. Instead of church becoming another, another step in my process of self-actualization, it actually becomes, how can I be here helping stimulate you toward love and good deeds? How can I cultivate your flourishing? And we join, not churches as like uh, membership just to get in and then get the benefits uh, that come with church membership. I don't know what they are exactly. I mean, we are moving more and more toward social cost rather than benefit. But we join churches so that we can get in on the mission of the church. So we can be missionally minded and engaged to the glory of God. And we have an obligation, the text says, to bear with one another. This is going to require you, hold on, to know somebody. To know them. To know them. To bear with the failings of the weak and not to simply please yourself. The true bearing of uh, of burdens that the gospel over and over calls us to is costly and uncomfortable. 
And if it's not costly and uncomfortable for you or me, we might not be bearing burdens yet. But let us each please his neighbor. And it's important to say, and neighbor pleasing here that, that Paul's talking about is not man pleasing. And I know that because he goes on to say, for his good and to build him up. Living a life of men pleasing is not for his good at the end of the day. We seek, seek opportunities to edify our neighbors. Edification or the building of an edifice is constructive. We're seeking the positive, the good for our neighbor. I love my neighbor, therefore, I lay down my preferences and privileges for their good so that the gospel will have the loudest word in our conversation. I wonder if the gospel doesn't make it into more of our conversations because our preferences are louder than the gospel. I know it's that way for me, if I'm honest with you. So many times my preferences scream and the gospel whispers. But Christ sees his neighbors and he moves toward them in compassion. This is a deep moving because he sees they are lost. They are sheep without a shepherd. So a, a couple questions. Are you close enough to your brothers and sisters in the room to know really what's going on in their life and bear their burdens? Second question. Are you close enough to unbelieving neighbors that they share their burdens with you and so you can engage in the priestly work of bearing their burdens and praying for them. An idea, immediate application. Share a meal. Share a meal with a neighbor. Uh, Luther, Martin Luther talks about three conversions, and I'm going to modify them, tweak them, and, and, and update them to the uh, English Standard Version. Out of the German, right? But he says there's a conversion of the heart, and of the mind, and of the purse, or the wallet. I think in an affluent society like ours, we need to modify this. We need a conversion of the heart, of the mind, and of the home. When we start opening up our doors and inviting people in to love them, to bear their burdens, this is costly, this is uncomfortable, but it just might be that the gospel is going to cost us our lifestyle before it cost us our life. We might have to lay down our vision for the good life a little bit, or a lot of it, in order for the good of our neighbor. So we love our neighbor. Secondly, this, this, this hit me in prep deeply this week. Number two, we resolve to appear foolish for Christ's sake. We resolve to look foolish for Christ's sake. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. Paul gives us a little theological underbelly. He can't help himself. He's always tying uh, these things together. But he says, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Christ is always the pattern and power for your life. It would seem that the preaching of the gospel right now is not in season. That anything that has the word holy or traditional on it is on the wrong side of human history. And churches that are sleeping on the gospel are allergic to embarrassment. Allergic to, a, we need an EpiPen of the gospel to wake us up 
to wake us up, brothers and sisters. Paul puts this little theological mixtape together in this verse. You might know what a mixtape is. If you're above the age of 30, you do. If you're below the age, you're like a playlist? Is that what you mean? A theological mixtape here to prove a point. He takes Philippians 2 and Psalm 69, presses them together to press his point into us. Reproaches will fall on us. And being a Christian is moving in the direction of social cost. It's already there in many, many places. And as Christians, the more we are looking foolish, appearing foolish to a watching world, we must resolve to do so. Because when we look foolish, guess what? The gospel's becoming more vivid. It's getting vivid. It's getting 2020. It's getting HD 1080. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now what this doesn't mean, oh great, now I can act a fool. That's not what we're talking about. We appear foolish to those who are perishing. But guess what? The motivation is love. I love you so I'm okay with you thinking I'm a fool so that we can talk about sin, so that we can talk about death, so that we can talk about hell. We resolve to speak of a Savior who came and was crucified, bearing the wrath of God for our sin, and that we were utterly dead in our sins and trespasses, and only the grace of God jump-started these dead hearts, gave them alive, and then gathered them together into a people who were previously not a people. We pursue not foolishness, but wisdom, but our wisdom increasingly looks foolish in a foolish world. So let's resolve to look like fools for Christ. The impulse and the temptation is to defend yourself, but the call of the gospel is deny yourself. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. And the gospel is our great inoculation for embarrassment. Okay? Because Jesus shows us that through humiliation comes glorification. Through the folly of the cross comes resurrection. And he tells his disciples and us that we will share in the same sufferings. And I don't even know where prosperity gospel even gets a foot in the door in the Bible. Because it's nowhere in the Bible. A comfortable Christianity is foreign to the scriptures. Completely foreign. But just another, another a little nugget. Just a nugget to put in. I'm sorry. Just a little, another nugget. You may think, you may think that by holding to truth, by standing firm on the gospel, you are in this moment in the minority. You may think that. But I want you to know, there's a story, and it's amazing, it's a wonderful story. There's a story in Kings, in 2 Kings 6. Elisha is about to have a showdown. They are surrounded. It would appear they are in the minority position. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the host of heaven is standing on the gospel. You, you are in the majority. The minority is this wicked evil generation that's ridiculing and mocking. Listen, the host of heaven are right there. And then the eyes of the servant are open, and he's like, oh, you're right. <laughs> Love it. Let's keep going. Time, all that. Number three, we hold fast to the sufficiency of Scripture. 
Verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. There are a million, no, going on a billion messages in the world today. And an increasing temptation for all of us is to accommodate our message to make it more palatable to the world, to tweak the message. It's basically like taking a page out of the culture's book and then trying to reintroduce it in synthetic form back into uh, our hearts to be able to see if that, that, that does some change. It's a synthetic version of the disease. Like maybe the gospel needs to be packaged in more digestible ways to appease the culture. Or maybe it needs a little software update. That metaphor does break down at some point for anyone who's like in the tech space. Okay. Hardware, midware, software, I don't know. We can, we can talk about it later. But we have, listen, listen. We have received a word from God. God has spoken. God has spoken in the scriptures. An entire book is written and given to us of what God has said. And the scriptures have never been more accessible, brothers and sisters, and less read, and less read. We know where the truth is. We know where hope is. We know where wisdom is. But I am so much more quick to run to a podcast, to articles, to blog posts, to an Instagram influencer jumping on TikTok for three hours straight because it sucked me in, or YouTube before sitting under the word of God. Even Peter, bless Peter, he would give us an eye roll, right? There's a story, and, and Peter is uh, with Jesus. Jesus feeds 5,000 people, arguably 20. Talk about it later. He feeds these people. Next day, they show up. They, they're like, uh, can we get a repeat performance? But Jesus isn't in the business of pulling rabbits out of hats. So he says, uh, you know, they all left, and he turns to his disciples, and he says, you're not going to leave me too. What does Peter say? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? The scriptures are sufficient for our mission. Sufficient. And they also give us reasons for the hope that lies in us. Peter would write in his epistle, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's something, there's something uh, lost in the art of just sharing your testimony. By all means, we should share our testimony. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I was deaf, now I hear. I was dead in my sin, but now I'm alive in Christ. Our testimony is powerful. But how do we know that is true? We know that is true because 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And he was buried and he was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Family, hear me. We are not meant to live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need endurance and encouragement, and we find that in the Scriptures. We really can't expect salt water to satisfy our thirst. Go to the scriptures. I love you. Hear me. Take and eat. Take and eat. Even if you've got to shut other things down, take and eat this book. 
a few questions for us. When someone asks you to ask you why you are doing this or that, can you explain your answer without God in the equation? Another question. When someone asks you why you live the way you do, does your mind wander to the sacred writings which Paul says to Timothy are able to save the soul? Question three, when you hear a wind of doctrine, do you run to the scriptures to see if these things are so, or are you tossed to and fro? Four, when you have a big decision to make, does your process for determining the direction of your life look any different than your unbelieving neighbor? Or is the word of God a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path? God continues to speak through what he has spoken, and that word is sufficient. That word is sufficient. And when we sit under the word, something amazing starts to happen. When these three things show up, which if you're keeping score at home, this is faith, hope, and love right here in the text. When these things start to show up and a community begins to be formed, we are utterly unique, and we sing a song that no one else in the world can sing. And it is powerful. It is powerful. Because it's what the culture craves but cannot get because they want the kingdom without the king. And we got both. We got both. Step four, point four. We live in Christ-exalting harmony. Christ-exalting harmony. Verses five and six. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is nothing less than the beauty of Christ on display in front of the watching world. We're going to look at two words, harmony and accord. Harmony and accord. We don't have time to mine it all. Harmony and accord. Harmony is what happens when a combination of simultaneously sounded musical notes produce chords and chord progressions that have a pleasing effect. And Paul is, if you will, laying out the sheet music for the church in Rome and us to play. For Paul, Jews and Gentiles display the gospel through this robust unity. For us, consider the beauty when black and white and brown, rich and poor, old and young, loud and quiet, male and female, from every tribe and every tongue and every people, every language, sing harmony. Sing harmony. This means we do not flatten or reduce differences into dull singing in unison, but we step into intricate, complex, and diverse music that the people of God in this moment, when this type of community emerges, guess what happens? God gets glory. Because he is the creator. He's the creator who made all of these things, who made the, the, all of these different differences in us. And when we bring them together in harmony, we're glorifying the creator. That is worth living for, I'll have you know. And the only place you can find it is the church of God, the church of Christ. That's the only place when the gospel forms a people. 
That's worth living for, it's worth loving for, and it's worth striving for. But hear me, not as the end in itself. Not as the end in itself. No, the glory of God is the end for which all things were created. For from him are all things, and to him all are all things. He deserves the glory, as we sing. But the second word here is accord, and it's important. Bring it together. Harmony and accord. Christ himself is the tuning fork. Every instrument in the orchestra plays according to the tuning fork. The tuning fork sounds, and then they tune all their instruments so that when they play together, this music makes sense. And that is Christ. He is the great conductor of the orchestra. Christ is the musical key in which we sing. And he's the Lord over our song. There are countless other things trying to bootleg or auto-tune our harmony. But only the person of Jesus and our union with Jesus makes this happen. When we, re- when we really realize that we are adopted children, we all are, and we remember who we are apart from Christ, we humbly and joyfully enter into this type of community, and we live in one accord with Christ. The more we agree with him, the more we agree with one another, and preferences melt away. So, question, can you explain your relationships along sociological lines? Can you explain your relationships without the cross of Christ? If you can, maybe this is an affinity group. If you can't, maybe this is a church. We are called to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ. We were a marching band. We were made to be a marching band, playing music in the streets. And we do this together. What a wonderful plan of salvation. Beautiful. Uh, And five, we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. This is the so what moment of the letter to the Romans. What is the simple, basic, essential, street-level takeaway for the people in Rome? Welcome one another. That's profound and so simple, I can kind of wrap my mind around it. Welcome one another. If you think about your story at the most basic level, at some point, your coming to Christ was by someone simply welcoming you. Someone welcoming you. And the word welcome, it carries this idea to, to receive into one's own self, to receive into one's home, to receive into one's life. The welcome is essential, is essential to ordinary gospel-driven mission. Think about it, everything we've talked about so far. In order for me to bear your burden, I have to welcome you in. In order for me to love you and seek your flourishing, I have to first welcome you in. If I'm going to bear the reproaches that come in mission, I have to welcome my neighbor. If I'm going to live in this beautiful harmony with the people of God, sounding forth the news of his glorious grace, we have to come together. We have to welcome one another. But you may think that this welcome is just basically niceness or courteousness or politeness or formality. 
But in our text, we can't get away from the fact that that is absolutely not what this is. Because the text says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Christ did not welcome us with mere niceness. He did not welcome us with politeness or because it was expected. Christ welcomed us when we hated him. When we were in open rebellion against his good rule and reign, Christ moved toward us, giving up the comfort of heaven to bear the burdens, our burdens. And he bore them not once or, you know, right before service, all the way up the hill and all the way to the cross. And I wonder, would you receive the welcome of Christ this morning? Maybe you haven't. Hear me, receive the welcome of Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Our mission is nothing less than extending the welcome of Christ to the world around us and to one another. Christ took on our reproaches. Christ came to serve and not to be served. Christ welcomes us and then invites us to go welcome others. And the mission is nothing short of this. It's extending this outside the doors of this church to our neighborhood, in our families, in our workplaces. As we live ordinary gospel-driven lives, we open up our lives and lay them down for the love of our neighbor. We become prepared, resolved to look foolish for sharing good news, for sharing truth. And we cling to the scriptures for encouragement, endurance, and hope. And we enjoy the beautiful harmony that this creates as we follow Christ together. I don't know about you. This is an adventure worth giving your life to. This is the the type of life that is worth living. But it is not the end in itself. And this, this this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Look at the second part of this verse. It says this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We call these things areas of emphasis, church planting, orphan care, and, and mission to the Dixieland and surrounding area. And none of them is the main dish for dinner. None of them. They're wonderful things that we're called to as the people of God, but none of them are the ends in themselves. The final part of the verse tells us what is. The glory of God. The glory of God. There will come a day, brothers and sisters, where no more churches will need to be planted. There will come a day when fostering is no longer even needed. (laughs) And there will come a day when there are no more orphans to wonder if someone's coming. And there will come a day when the mission will be accomplished and the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There's coming a day when church plants will join in with the elders singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain, when adopted sons and daughters of God reign on the earth and enjoy the Father forever. And the mission of the church is done. But until Christ returns, we will exist 
to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful to you for creating us. Father, for redeeming us, for saving us, for calling us, for equipping us, for empowering us. Father, I pray that we would leave this place just zealous to see your glory permeate this world. Father, I pray that the King's Church would shine brightly in the darkness, that we would glorify you. And Father, I pray that we would find great joy in Christ that would lead us to mission, which is just to see a greater worship of you. Father, we long to see that. So Father, I pray that in all of the individual ways where you've placed us, what you've called us to individually. Father, I pray that we would come together and sing with such harmony and such such noise that we would be a holy disruption in this place, in this city, in this town. Father, I pray that the vision of the beginning of having a neighborhood where everyone knows the gospel and is talking about the gospel would come to be. And Father, begin with us. pray these things in your name. Amen.